Hello everyone and welcome to That Was Genius. This is a funny history podcast by Tom Berry and Sam Datter, exploring little-known stories and corners of the past. We'll get to the history shortly, but first, a couple of minutes of what we ominously call, quote, witty banter, highlights of our pre-recording chat, which usually ends up being mostly toilet humour. I'm just going to quickly take my headphones off because I'm getting a little bit hot and sweaty in my... Um 14 year olds rugby top that I still have as pyjamas <laughs> I once played rugby against you I think before we both went to college you may have seen me once upon a time in this rugby top was this in school when we yeah. were in school and your, your PE teacher was an absolute cock who disallowed one of my tries and just seemed to be thinking it was really funny when your <laughs> players punched our players well I'm, pl- I'm proud to say Tom that that would have been the one and only time you would have seen me would have been my one and only rugby match and I contractually to become a house captain prefect at school because obviously in Britain we live in Harry Potter land, I I had to contractually captain the rugby team or captain a sports team. So they put me in for one match. (laughs) I basically stood at the back. I stood in goal in this rugby match. And... uh, (laughs) You're fielding. Played about about 10 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, I was inside inside leg. (laughs) Inside leg. (laughs) Is that even a cricket thing? I don't know. Maybe that's why I wasn't allowed to play on the cricket team. (laughs) 34 chest and um uh, 34 chest not out um it's good yeah <laughs> oh dear and uh, and that was my that was the only time I ever played did you win Pl- uh, rugby at school uh, I, I can't remember Tom I, I wasn't really present <laughs> I assume I assume we must have done because because your, your team were cheating bastards who tried to get all sorts of nonsense past us but fortunately thanks to our Brave and fearless PE teacher who used to—I I seem to remember—used to wear ballet pumps, despite being pretty much the epitome of the red-faced gammon. <laughs> oh, I, I remember our PE teacher, who, in fairness to him, was a really, really nice chap, being absolutely fucked off on the way home, driving the bus, and um, <laughs> obviously wanting to swear and sm- smack the steering wheel, but not doing so because he was actually quite a nice person. He was so pissed. He was so pissed <laughs> off, and I think that was the last time we ever played. I can just imagine you with your dandy running style, <laughs> bouncing around a my rugby d- pitch. My short, dandy short running song. style. <laughs> my dandy running style. Yes. Okay. Fine. So I run like I'm carrying something fragile in both hands. <laughs> what of it? Your ego, clearly, Sam. <laughs> Should we do a podcast? Let's do a podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome to That Was Genius, the little history podcast where Tom and Sam have just spent literally 18 minutes and 49 seconds peacocking about how how one used to be faster than the other. None of which is making the cut because we're here to talk about history. But just for the record, we were both being twats. We were both being very absolute male. bellends, we yes. We were both being very, very male. Yeah, we were both kind of alpha mailing it up with very, uh, Sam was boasting. very beta male performances. <laughs> Sam, Sam Athletically. was boasting about having a faster 5k time than me, which is true. And I was boasting about being better at 100 meter sprinting, when in fact neither of us are particularly good at either. No. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Uh, well, this is the Little History Podcast in which Tom, who's over there Hello. and lightning fast uh, over 100 metres, and Sam over here, who is literally faster than anyone else alive in 5K, so long as they're sat at home scratching their ass. discuss history stories on a theme each week. We decide the topic a week in advance, but everything else that happens is a surprise. And what is the topic this week, Tom? It's Best Friends Week, isn't it? It is. Best it friends. is. Fitting. Best Friends. Fitting friends. for two people who... <laughs> 
who've just spent 10 minutes <laughs> abusing each other's sporting ability. <laughs> How did you find the topic this week, Tom? Uh, good. Well, it was one that I suggested, or at least one that an audience member suggested and then I picked up on. Because You did. You grabbed it out of the ether and uh, yanked hard on it. I did. I, I gave my best friend a big yank. And um, I was keen <laughs> for this one because I'd come across something that I found quite amusing a few weeks ago in my research. And then I sat on my laurels for the week and then realised this morning oh. that there wasn't really 30 minutes worth of goodness to be squeezed out of it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you could do 20 minutes of goodness. Well, yeah. I, I, what I've done is I've expanded it slightly to fulfil my requirements, much like Putin in Ukraine. <laughs> Excellent. Not really part of the story, but we're going to claim that it's part of the story. <laughs> Here's a funny one for you, Sam, actually. Are you ready for this? Oh, go on. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Justin Timberlake is touring Russia. Vladimir Putin calls him and says, How do you fancy joining me for a boat party? Timberlake responds, Whereabouts? Putin says, It's the Crimean River. <laughs> oh, I made that up on myself, Sam, and I made it up last week after the recording when I realised that would have been funny wow. had I said that. It would have been funny if one of us had said it. I was thinking that as I was not saying it. <laughs> <laughs> That would have been a really funny joke had it been spontaneous <laughs> and quick. But it wasn't. It wasn't, no. It was not very spontaneous and very late. Yeah, so I, I did come up with something eventually. I expanded what I was originally going to do. Much like Putin in Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what? how about you? How you about brought a little, Donbass, a little Donbass sexiness into the uh, into proceedings. Yeah, I've, I, I enjoyed this one. Uh, I found a story pretty quickly, actually. It's an amazing story. Not backed up by too many historical sources. (laughs) 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 That was another thing that slightly disappointed me. When I researched it, I realised what I was talking about was bullshit. Um, (laughs) uh, Yes, okay. So, And who's going first this week? I never keep track of these things. It's your turn to go first this time. And we're going to do audience feedback. We can do, yes. We haven't got much. It's a public episode. We did get Tommy Gunn's 777. Who let us know on Podbean that um, he very much liked it when we were talking about British RAF pilots dive jizzing Francis Bertels? Yes, <laughs> we did, and we had some uh, some amputee related hijinks. Oh, I can't that's remember right. if that was this episode or last time. Did you mention I it think, last uh, time? I can't remember if I did it or not. It was an email that came through as we were recording. I think. Yes, that's right. It was. Let me see if I can drag. That was very funny. Drag it out. That was very funny and worth mentioning. We had a message from someone who was uh, listening to our episode on Santa Ana, and food, our food episode, whilst driving along with their amputee dad, and uh, we were joking about Santa Ana losing his legs, because <laughs> we're classy like that. And they had to pull over and stop because they were laughing so hard on their drive, which I which I really liked. That was crappy. That was, uh, I mean, it was also. Slightly disappointing they didn't die because that's kind of a. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. Well, I wouldn't say that's it. the bar, isn't it? That's the bar. If you can make someone die laughing, you've really, you've <laughs> really made it. I mean, I'm sort of glad they didn't because obviously it would have been a needless loss of life. But at the same time, I feel like we've got some room for improvement in our humour. <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, it was Michael. He very much enjoyed it. He said uh, he was driving home from holidays and made it very enjoyable his dad's an amputee and got him to listen to the podcast he laughed so hard at Santa Ana's leg bit he had to pull over until he'd stopped laughing lovely back in right shall I get started go on oh actually do you know what he did have an excellent uh, topic suggestion though actually what was that did old Michael what was that then what was that then crazy military inventions that worked god damn it they worked like the A-team da, da, da. or MacGyver da, da, da. we got an ice cream van da, 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 da. Let's attach a machine gun. (laughs) And rockets. To Mr. Whippy. (laughs) 
If you put rockets onto a Mr. Whippy ice cream van, you'd end up with a Mr. Whiplash. Hooray! Hey! <laughs> anyway, talking of whipping, um, I started this week with the term whipping boy. That's where I wanted to go with my contribution. <laughs> Was it? You dirty bitch. <laughs> no, with this, with this episode. <laughs> and you obviously know the phrase whipping boy, which means someone who, uh, who takes a punishment on behalf of someone else. Yes, I've got one. He's speaking right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Donald Duck. A quick aside, there's a related term, scapegoat, that actually has a very interesting origin, so it's worth mentioning. It's biblical, first mentioned in Leviticus, and so it's part Ooh. of the Torah and the Old Testament. I think it's the third book of the Old Testament in the Torah, maybe. Anyway, it refers to part of the ancient Jewish Yom Kippur celebrations slash observations. Yom Kippur is still an important Jewish fe- uh, festival today. It's the Day of Atonement. But in ye olde times two goats would be chosen from the lottery of goats. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, roll up, roll up for the lottery of goats. Which will you choose? The one that moves, the one with the beard, the one that's weird, the one with small hooves, the one with dance moves, the one that does bleat, the one with human feet, the one with the piercing stare, the one with the afro hair, the lottery of goats. Which one will be freed, which one will bleed? It's a random selection. <laughs> which one are you going to choose? <laughs> which one? So the... hooves. <laughs> yes, So there excellent. you have it, the, the, the lottery of, of goats. Anyway, one would be sacrificed and the other was symbolically burdened with the sins of man and then sent out into the desert to die. And my Jewish no. theology isn't the best, but I understand that all this goat malarkey stopped after the Romans destroyed the Temple of Jerusalem in 70 AD under the leadership of Titus, if I remember correctly. And this was... The Romans outlawed goats. Yeah, no, no, it wasn't that. I just don't think there was anywhere for the goats to be chopped up and sacrificed. Oh. So it's more a lack of suitable facilities. There was... <laughs> <laughs> That'll get you. You know what, that's why kids these days are so badly behaved. No skate parks. It starts off with destroying the temples, then they close the youth clubs. Then what are the kids doing? Kids are having to slaughter goats on the street corners <laughs> for crack. For shits and giggeries. Gig- giggeries? <laughs> shits and giggeries. <laughs> I like that phrase. Just made it up. Giggeries is a hard drug. Back alley, back alley lotteries of the goats. <laughs> yeah. Oi, oi, geez. Oi, geez. Want to put a fiver on a goat? I've got a lovely billy back here. <laughs> Anyway, this was much to the delight of the local goats, who thought the whole thing was rather unfair, as it was the humans who had sinned and not the goats. Hmm. Connected. <laughs> well, it is quite unfair. Yeah, it is a little bit unfair. Um, connected to this, in ancient Greece, there was a concept of a pharmakos, which I found rather funny, despite its obvious brutality. The word does sound like pharmacy, incidentally, and the two are distantly related, although I couldn't work out why. So, in ancient Greece, during times of crisis, so invasions, plagues, famines, etc., someone would be chosen to be a pharmakos, or a scapegoat, or a whipping boy, for society. Ooh. The individual was usually someone lowly or undesirable, like a murderer, or someone disabled, or someone who was ugly. Uh, for example, in the 6th century BC, a poet, Hipponax, uh, mentions that a particularly ugly man was chosen <laughs> to be... That's a fortunate name. Hipponax. <laughs> Hipponax, like elephant bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, elephant bollocks. He was also a philosopher from the sixth century, wasn't he? I oh, was one of very, yeah, very early, uh, very early medical practitioner. <laughs> elephant bollocks. <laughs> there was also uh, giraffe knackers. 
There was indeed, yeah. 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 And of course, testicles. Testicles, yeah, yeah, yeah. In an example from a 6th century BC poet, Hippodax, a particularly ugly man was chosen to be honoured with wonderful feasts <laughs> and other special treatment. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Thank you. It's very kind of you. I'm smiling from wart to wart. <laughs> Gurning, <laughs> put his bottom lip up over his nose. Is gurning a very British thing? Do you think other cultures, other countries, have gurning? I, I don't know. Oh, if you're not good British, question. If you're not British, gurning is an ugly face competition. Yes, it's the it's the competition for the worst smile, basically. <laughs> which as Brits, with our dental history, <laughs> is a stiff competition. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the gap between yes. competitors. Is, is minuscule in scoring the gap between their teeth rather larger <laughs> <laughs> so this particularly ugly man with his horrible toothless grin would then be smacked with fig branches including seven times on the knob very very prescriptive <laughs> then, and lo you shall be twatted seven times on thy no, knob <laughs> that'd be okay I think <laughs> clobbered on the knob no twatted on the knob yeah <laughs> and then he was driven out of town. And the practice varied from city-state to city-state. Sometimes the individual was stoned to death. Sometimes they were treated Ooh. like a prince for a whole year or so. And then stoned to exactly. death. Exactly. <laughs> and the general theme was that some poor person was duped into thinking they were having a whale of a time. Then they were treated horribly. Hooray! <laughs> Hooray. Well, I'm not sure they were duped. Sorry, though, because they're ugly. So. Yeah, exactly. Well, precisely. Tidying up the gene pool a wee bit, isn't it? <laughs> But it was it was a form of communal catharsis that was quite, actually quite well thought through because no one well bred or honourable was hurt, you know. Yes, you just hurt absolutely. Some poor person. Anyway, about ten minutes yeah. ago, I mentioned uh, that I was going to start with the term whipping boy. Let's try again. There were lots of examples from the early modern period in Europe of noble children having a whipping boy. And have you heard of this before? I didn't. I didn't know that they would have a whipping boy. Yeah, well, they a whipping boy. So a popular example is William Murray who was the first Earl of Dysart, Dysart being somewhere in Fife, Scotland. And when Murray was a boy, his uncle took him under his wing and educated him alongside the future King Charles I, and Murray's uncle was already Charles I's tutor. Because Charles was the son of King James I of England and James VI of Scotland, um, how could he possibly be punished by his tutor? Remember that James I was a particularly pompous twat, in fact, so was Charles I, believing himself to be divinely appointed and thus above being corrected by Parliament. So poor old William Murray, who became very good friends with Charles, was punished in his stead and in front of him. The theory being that this would encourage good behaviour from Charles because he wouldn't like seeing his best friend being whipped. The theory yeah. obviously falls down when a noble child is a psychopath. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> Whoopsie, I was appeared to have dropped my quin again. You must punish Jenkins <laughs> over there, good and proper. Yes. He did a fart earlier. I think I shall misspell an easy word. <laughs> Oops! I've drawn a picture of the headmaster with a big cock on his head. Fetch the ruler, <laughs> headmaster! Silly me! <laughs> oh dear, I shut on the headmaster's mortarboard hat and it slipped off onto a copy of Plato's Republic. Oh dear! And then slipped off that into his lap. <laughs> <laughs> into his cup of tea. And and slipped off that into his tea, which plopped out of that and onto his shoe. <laughs> Whoopsie doopsie doo. What a naughty boy I am. <laughs> it would be a shame if someone were to spot me doing this. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. So now being a whipping boy, despite what you'd initially think, wasn't a bad thing. 
You became very close to the king, or whichever noble it was, and so it was a great opportunity for improving your lot in life, particularly when you were grown up. William Murray, for example, became a loyal advisor to Charles I, and in that capacity, he was very influential, and his support was sought after because he had the king's ear. He did uh, he did do well at the arrangement. He's going to be the yeah, he's going to be the cautious advisor, though, isn't he? <laughs> the one who was repeatedly beaten as a child for the mistakes of others is, I suspect, <laughs> going to be some, some, yes, something of a nervous wreck <laughs> later in life. Shall we invade France? <laughs> With ruler. What do you what do you think? <laughs> it could go it, it could go very badly, my lord. It could go very, very, very badly. Is that a chalkboard rubber in your pocket? I'm not sure I can do this. <laughs> or are you just pleased to see me? <laughs> what? No. No. He did do well at this arrangement. For example, Charles granted him Ham House in London, which was incredibly desirable because of its location, Ooh. and so close to the centre of London, and also because it was made yes. up cured pig. Right products. next to, yeah, I was going to say right next to sausage. I think you're going to try and get in there. <laughs> Sorry, the, the Sorry. pepperoni ping pong parlour is particularly popular. <laughs> Marvellous. Kind of rushed to the finish line there, wasn't it? Trying to get that out <laughs> before is. you came out. <laughs> Unfortunately, the closest you can get these days is Chicken Cottage, which definitely isn't. <laughs> you, don't want, you don't want a Chicken Cottage. You don't want a Chicken Cottage. Louis XV of France also had whipping boys, apparently, one of whom was a cobbler's son. Um, but this didn't stop him oh. from being a spoiled little shit. Not the cobbler's son. That was Louis XV. Apparently, he was very badly behaved. Um, Edward the the Sixth of England apparently had a whipping boy called Barnaby Fitzpatrick. <laughs> That's a name, Wade. Barnaby. Yes. <laughs> it sounds very Dickensian. I'd want to whip him. Barnaby Fitzpatrick. I'd want to whip him. You'd whip him just for his name. He was, a, <laughs> yeah. and for being Irish, he was the son of an Irish noble. Oh wow! Well, God, definitely yeah, in that case. Absolutely. Who had sworn fealty to Edward. As part of the deal, and to secure his loyalty, Fitzpatrick was sent to the king's court as a child to be educated with Edward VI. They became very close friends, and Fitzpatrick profited from the arrangement uh, later in life. Uh, friends in high places and all that. Now, there is an argument that whipping boys never actually existed, and the concept was a satirical one born out of the what? pomposity of James I what? and his son Charles I, something I've already alluded to who believed that kings were above all criticisms. And this attitude obviously led to the English Civil War and Charles's beheading. The example of Edward VI, who reigned before the Stuarts, is also based on very little evidence. And I have to say, in my research, I found very little solid examples or evidence of any whipping boys from history. But it's actually quite a well-known, inverted commas, fact that actually doesn't really stand up much to scrutiny. But we still use the phrase whipping boys, so obviously it's come into common parlance, despite not really ever being the case oh. so you can see where I got to a bit of a dead end with that one so who were these people did the people exist like the cobbler's absolutely. son and absolutely and they were to the one but they just but they just never got the lights oh, punched I out of them where their royal friend was a dickhead I'm not so sure about the Louis XV example I didn't find any historians who had um, rebuked that theory but certainly the Edward VI had been rebuked by some historians who just said well, there's no evidence of this and I'm fairly sure that the example of William Murray it's, there's, there's no solid evidence for it. There are just passing references. So I think it is a phrase that's come into common parlance as a result of it being a sort of satirical a satirical thing. Uh, anyway, it, it's, it exists. For being badly behaved, pompous pricks. For being pompous pricks, exactly. You couldn't take responsibility for their own actions. No, precisely. And you, you just thought they were above everyone else. Very, very hoity-toity, weren't they? So, yeah, when I reached this disappointing conclusion, I decided that I needed to branch out slightly. So on the topic of best friends, 
and close political advisors, let me introduce you to the groom of the stool. Oh, no, I know about the groom of the stool. Yeah, I think this is probably quite well known, but worth going into details because it's actually quite funny and it's related. Yeah, don't don't dive into it too deeply. As a little teaser. Just your feet poking out. Um, <laughs> this wasn't someone who pampered a poo in preparation for a photo shoot or someone who was walking down the aisle with a big steaming pile. No, <laughs> it was someone who helped the king in his time of most need when he was forcing out a particularly stubborn turd in the middle of the night. Yes. You see, the groom of the stool was someone who helped the king when he was taking a shit. He was. They probably didn't wipe the arse. There's no evidence for that. The Prince of Poos. The Prince of... Yes. The Lord of Logs. Yeah, that was a spin-off from He-Man, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Never quite took off. He-Man, Prince of Poos. <laughs> bum Nice. Um, they probably didn't wipe the arse. The Sultan of Shits. The Sultan of Shits. The Dark Lord of the Arse Gourd. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> the Duke of Dropping the Kids Off at the Pool. <laughs> dropping the Kids Off at the Pool. That's a nice one. Never heard that before. Hasn't it? <laughs> Have you not heard that no, before? I like... Uh, oh, that and Opening the Bombay Doors Over Berlin are my two favourites. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like paying a visit to Mr and Mrs Crapper. <laughs> Anyway. Well, talking... To, uh, it's a very Australian one. Is talking to Terry on the big white telephone. <laughs> <laughs> talking to Terry on the big white telephone. <laughs> yeah. Which I think is more for being sick, but is also is used for any kind of... Uh, any kind of toilet activity. And Terry is blatantly some Bondi beach tart, isn't she? 50. <laughs> skin like an old leather satchel. Too much sun. Dyed blonde hair. I feel like you've thought about this too much already. <laughs> anyway, let me get back. They probably didn't wipe the arse or point the penis, but they would have fetched the stool, hence the stool, and stood diligently with the bog roll and maybe some ship's chair, occasionally lending a forearm to be grabbed tightly. <laughs> brace, sire, brace against this. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite that tight, sir. I think maybe some things <laughs> for breakfast tomorrow. But, uh, uh, no, no, no for the queue. I want more quails. <laughs> Double my quail. Egg and ham pie. Bring me more <laughs> egg and birds. No, I'm not eat edible ones. Women. I want some more women. <laughs> women and pies. My two favourite things. <laughs> what? Oh, we could combine them. We can have a woman <laughs> pie. <sighs> like a really gravy-laden scene from... <laughs> under siege why what the fuck are you going on about how many beers have you had <laughs> you've seen that you've seen under siege haven't you I, the uh, train related that's a boat disaster action film oh it's I thought the boat was under siege 2 uh, under siege Maybe well, under siege 2 is, the, is Sandra Bullock and the um, and the train and it's crap but the first oh, one is Steven right. Seagal's only good film and he almost ruins that <laughs> And um, it's got that scene, hasn't it, where the stripper jumps out of the, the big Christmas cake. Oh, the Christmas cake. The big oh. birthday cake. I was just imagining that. The big pie. The pie for, for gravy. <laughs> and a lady with scuba gear on. <laughs> like a bog snorkeler. That's like, that's like Yorkshire erotica, isn't it? <laughs> Really, that that and Jeffrey Boycott in a in a, co- 
Jeffrey boycott in his in his jock strap. Oh god. With one wicket remaining. Woof. Anyway, there's a really long list of British royal grooms with a stall. Four hundred years worth, in fact, and the the position probably was older than that. Oddly evolved from a proper position to to an honorary position without any evidence of condescension either, so it was a respected title. And I'm gonna be honest. These silly privy chamber positions are very confusing and there are lots of them through history and I couldn't really be asked to work out exactly what was going on when because it would have been really quite boring. But it would appear that the title evolved as well as the role and there were similar positions such as a gentleman of the bedchamber or equivalent titles for queens. Yes. Are these the people who add up together to become the Privy Council? No, that's wrong, isn't Not, it? I, I, I think quite possibly they would have played... They would have had a position on the Privy Council. I think... That's a good question. I don't know whether the Privy Chamber was the same as the Privy Council, but I think the Privy Chamber was this sort of inner circle of people around the, the regent. Around the toilet. Around the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> one with the toilet duck, one with the bog roll, <laughs> one, one to flush... Um, one with the Beano. Um, change page, sir. Would you like me to change page? Or oh, once year Christmas tradition that they would meet and assist the, assist the monarch in creating the Yule log. <laughs> you said once. That's a good joke. Uh, but I thought you said once a year they would meet in the cistern. I thought it was where you were going. God, this king did produce big poos. If his system was that big, uh, along with all the small nobles who he'd flushed down the toilet once they got too big to care for. <laughs> The sewers of London just running with <laughs> angry <laughs> angry sewer lords who've <laughs> been flushed down at a young age. <laughs> Got too big to care for. Like so many goldfish and alligators, flush them down the loo. Oh, very strange. They formed a, they formed a massive <laughs> fatberg. A massive, yeah. a, a massive privy chamberberg. Stuck yeah. together. I was oh. thinking they become like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles now. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. No, so I, I think the Privy Chamber and those those who worked in the Privy Chamber basically were in a very influential position because the king or the regent was very vulnerable there. It was very private and vulnerable. And so only very trusted people would be selected to be in that position. And also they were often very um, important advisors to the regent. Yes, uh, give them advice on such things as fibre intake. Well, funny you mention that. Before the title became more ceremonial and less, well, vocational, it was very important that the groom updated the monarch's physician too in case of unpleasant yes. movements yeah, and yeah. indicate sickness. They were Absolutely, too much black bile. Posh. Gillian McKeith's. Yeah, Black Bile, nice reference, especially when I've been talking about the Stuarts. And like Gillian McKeith, not a doctor. <laughs> Regardless of specific, these in, these individuals had um, a very intimate relationship with the monarch, as mentioned, whether it be holding a candle whilst um, he or she exited the bishop's palace, which is quite, quite a risky position if the monarch had recently consumed a vindaloo and a few too many pints of lager. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, or helping the monarch pull up their undies in the morning. In fact, members of Henry VIII's inner circle often acted as pimps. I alluded to that uh, earlier on, finding him hussies to shag. But I digress. These intimate positions often led to intimate relationships and closeness to the monarch meant power, not only because of what the monarch could do for you, but because of what you could do for people who wanted to influence the monarch. And because of that theme, I thought I'd quickly go on to uh, something slightly different but related. So from loyal bum wipers to another type of loyal courtier from history, eunuchs. 
Cool, blimey. A three-in-one story. Very, very similar position. Humans, and I'll only do this quite quickly, humans have been getting stuck into genital mutation and mutilation since time began. Mutation. No, that's what happens when you flush lords down the toilets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. There's been genital mutilation from the start of time. Why? Because we're over-evolved chimps that do fucking horrible things to each other. Um Yes. And the more intelligent we became, it would appear, the more ways of hurting people we thought up. I was thinking this last week when discussing exorcisms and the horrible torture and execution of men thought to be responsible for putting devils in people. Animals kill other members of the same species where they feel threatened or scared, or they're trying to become the alpha male. I think it's only humans prolong the experience and really torture people, don't they? Yes. Although, isn't it, actually, I may, I may take that back. I think whales, killer whales, hasn't there been evidence of killer whales torturing seals? Oh, no, well, they do. Well, they play with their food, but cats play with their food. Anyway, eunuchs have been a very popular choice of courtier for, for, for well, forever because they are seen as less of a threat. They're not a sexual threat. They're not going to try and bonk the harems. They're not as much of a political threat because they cannot start their own dynasties and are presumably less aggressive due to less testosterone, I suppose. It has to be said, though, they have often been desired for sexual reasons too. Um, just like whipping boys and grooms of the stall, eunuchs were often very powerful due to their close proximity to statesmen. Mm. Yes, they often knew exactly what was going on in the bedroom and mm. had uh, gossip to tell and exactly. sell. Exactly, and I'll give you a, quick, a few quick examples. Not too many, because I'm, I'm digressing a bit too much there. Um, and there are shed loads I could have chosen from, a lot of famous eunuchs. I did mention, actually, that eunuchs couldn't start their own dynasties. Well, interestingly, there are exceptions. Um, Philetarus founded the Attalid dynasty in the aftermath of Alexander the Great's death. He apparently was a eunuch, having had his scrotum crushed as a child in a tight crowd. Ooh, ouch. Ooh, in a tight crowd? Yeah, apparently it was a tight crowd. He was in a tight crowd what? somewhere and there was a bit of a... Why did he have his bollocks out in a tight crowd? He did bollocks. Oh, he's a child. Oh, that's part- well, fell yes. Over. Maybe that's why the crowd had gathered around him. Because All right, enough talk of... Ch- look, look at that boy with enormous bollocks. <laughs> okay. Okay, enough. Uh, slightly uncomfortable ground there, talking about children's bollocks. Come on now. Talking of Alexander the Great, he apparently fell in love with a Persian eunuch called Bagoas, and Bagoas utilised their relationship to settle some old scores. A good example of what I was saying. Um, Halotus was a Roman eunuch with a really dreadful breath. No, (laughs) it was suspected of poisoning Emperor Claudius. A good example of the position of power these Mm. courtiers had. Being so close to statesmen, and then there is Gang Bing, who couldn't gang bang because he lopped off his dongle to serve the younger emperor. <laughs> Ding! And I, I did that one simply because it sounded funny. <laughs> and there've been oh, a long list of successful military generals too who were eunuchs. Anyway, there you go. So we've got um, hitting boys, shitting boys, and uh... where do you? Uh, yes, where do you? Where boys? did your dick go, boys? <laughs> <laughs> Damn, starts off promisingly and uh, really died out there halfway through, didn't it? <laughs> Just like puberty for a eunuch. <laughs> yeah. That was very interesting, Tom. Thank you. So uh, I've gone for a, for a very unusual story of best friends for you today, Tom. And I've actually gone with best friends rather than just <laughs> bollockless palace assistants. <laughs> Sounds like a good game show. <laughs> Who lost their bollocks in a palace like this? Let's go up the bumhole. <laughs> it doesn't work. No. Let's go. Let's go down the U bend. <laughs> Who spanked her bottom like this? So I've gone World War Two again, which is a bit lazy of me, but it's such a good story. I thought it was probably worth it. And I have literally, Tom, no idea how historically accurate this story is because it's purely one man's own account of his experiences in World War Two. 
But the families on both sides of this story have agreed that it happened and uh, pretty much agree with, with the way that the story's told. So it's, I guess, as reputable as any as a primary source. What are you going to do? This is the unlikely friendship of Max Gendelman, a Jewish-American sniper, Karl Kirschner, a German Luftwaffe pilot, and a daring World War II prison escape. I realise that the way I've just said that makes it sound like the prison escape was one of the friends. <laughs> yeah, I uh, did no, think that. No, that was just yeah. a thing the two friends yeah. did. <laughs> but I'm not going to go and correct it. <laughs> the story is told through Max's autobiography, which is called The Tale of Two Soldiers. We'll start off with Max. It's his autobiography. Fuck it. Let's do him first. He was uh, born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Milwaukee? Oh, no, no. How to pronounce where? that? Wait, is that close to Milwaukee? Milwaukee. Uh, is it Milwaukee? <laughs> Milwaukee? Milwaukee. 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 I think, I think Milwaukee was in Star Wars. <laughs> so, uh, it was, how is it pronounced? Milwaukee. Milwaukee, isn't it? Milwaukee. 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 Hold on. Well, let's Google it. No, let's not bother. So Max was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in August 1923. He was descended from Ukrainian Jews who arrived in the US sometime in the late 19th century. And in 1941, at the age of 19, when the war broke out uh, for, for the Americans, <laughs> you know, a little later, <laughs> nice a little later the party. Yeah. It's not like he was gassing Jews, he, uh, you know. No, I mean, it's not like there was something no. worth fighting for, you know. You just you just sit back and relax. That's all right. Wait until your fucking yeah. island is bombed, eh? Although, to be fair, actually, that's not entirely true because uh, the Americans were covertly fighting for the Allies for, uh, I think, about a year before World War II actually started. So covertly, nobody ever remembers. <laughs> yes. Nobody gives a shit. So, yeah, in 1941, at the age of 19, he joined the Army and became a sniper in the 99th Infantry Division. Uh, spent a few years in the Army, but in December 1944, he found himself fighting in the Battle of the Bulge, which was Hitler's last-ditch attempt to force the Allies back through the Ardennes. To get an erection. <laughs> Doesn't know to get the erection down. <laughs> That's such a dreadful joke. Sorry. Yeah, I know. Ach, nein, stop thinking of Marlene Dietrich. Think of her. Oh, who's an ugly German? Going. Going. Kaiser Wilhelm. <laughs> Goering. Think of Goering dancing naked in the rain, swinging around a lamppost first. <laughs> Tackle, swinging freely. Oh, nein, it's almost worse. <laughs> Now that I'm thinking of not having an erection, all I can think about is getting an erection. Yes, I think after this war, I need to confront some difficult truths about the people I surround myself with. Winston Churchill on the toilet. Winston Churchill on the toilet. Ach, nein, I just came. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yes, he found himself fighting in the Battle of the Bulge, which was Hitler's last-ditch attempt to force his penis back into his trousers and uh, and force the Allies back through the Ardennes Forest on the (laughs) French-German... on the French-Belgian border in order to try and capture Antwerp and force a favourable peace treaty with the West. It was a particularly brutal battle fought in horrendous conditions with some 90,000 Allied casualties and around 70,000 Axis killed and wounded in a little over a month. A a really, really brutal battle. And on December 15th, 1944... The the Germans were going um, from Germany into Dutch territory where they threw yes. the for us. Yeah, well the Germans weren't going to be invading from Holland into Germany, were they? <laughs> well no, but they were already they were already that's how they got into France, isn't it? Through the Ardennes Forest, north of the Maginot line. It is, but it's not going to be the way that they fight back into Germany. Well, well they were already in France, weren't they? So I was just wondering whether they were going north from France. They already occupied that. No, no, no. They were trying to they were basically trying to catch Antwerp on the uh, North Sea coast. Was uh, was the way. So coming from Germany into uh, into Bel- into France from Belgium and Germany. On December 15th, 1944, the Germans overran Max's company, killing all but 28 of the 185 men in his unit. As a sniper, he was away from the uh, from the foxholes, 
hiding and shooting enemy snipers through their scopes in slow motion, shooting through telegraph wires to bring down poles on top of tanks, and blowing up carts full of dynamite with his revolver to stop the SS from digging up the archaeological sites of asterisks and obelisks in the hope of finding the ancient secret to their super strength potion. You know, just sniper stuff. What the fuck was that? went from Indiana Jones to asterisks. Yeah, I know, right? I was quite. It's blended badly. Yeah. That was beautiful. <laughs> Completely bonkers. Thank you. That makes me want to read Asterix, actually, because Asterix, and all, Asterix is really good. It is great. It just reminded me about how uh, how good Asterix is. Oh, it's superb. Best book series in the world, comic book series in the world. Uh, so for the next 24 hours, Max was dodging between German attacks and the shifting front lines, trying to get back to safety. Eventually, he found himself crossing a field with another wounded soldier when German artillery spotted them and shelled them. The soldier Max was travelling with was killed instantly, and Max was badly wounded. Uh, so badly wounded, in fact, that a piece of shrapnel literally tore off his dog tags, the identity collar around his neck. So, you know, really... Pro- oh, that's very Hollywood movie. Very Hollywood movie. <laughs> Saved by his own dog tags, which was actually well, it was a blessing in disguise for more than one reason. Firstly, because he was still alive afterwards. Good. But also, be- because his dog tags were gone, it, it saved his life. Because if he'd been identified as a Jewish soldier, which his dog tags would have done, because it... it has your religious details for funeral rites on them he would probably have been shot and shot on sight and executed unless it was a fellow allied sniper who saw the position he was in and thought god damn i'm gonna have to take off his dog tag ping uh, yes unless he was <laughs> saved my life yeah absolutely and and fired it into his hands <laughs> like it pinged it off and into well, it's his hands make it look like he's been hit by shrapnel hasn't it <laughs> by missing and just shooting him <laughs> How do I make this man look like he's been shot? And take off his dog tag at the same time. <laughs> and take off his dog tag. Oh, I know, I'll just blow his head off. <laughs> That's kind of like shooting off someone's dog tags whilst they're still around your neck is is Bollywood action movie level of nonsense. <laughs> it, is, it is, isn't it? I remember watching the Bollywood film in India and it was just dreadful. They're amazing. The, the twists are just they're ludicrous. so good. They're so People good. People dying and then coming back again and driving around in a Lamborghini. <laughs> their sunglasses <laughs> on and their chest hair poking through their white shirt. <laughs> Have you ever seen... There's an Indian version of Terminator, and I can't remember what it's called. But it's Terminator 2, and the guy's got with the with the, with the metal ro- <laughs> yeah, like, malleable yeah. metal robot with the arms that can change. And all of these policemen have surrounded the Indian Terminator. And he whips around, and he's... His two arms carrying machine guns melt into eight arms carrying machine guns. <laughs> Brilliant. I'm going to have to look at that on YouTube. And there's another one, which is a really famous clip from a Bollywood uh, kind of historical epic, in which they're besieging some city, and, uh, and they've got a catapult, and they're firing over the city walls. And uh, the king, in order to get into the city to, to break the siege and capture the city, they wind the catapult back, and the king and, like, five or six of his most loyal and skilled soldiers all sit on the catapult <laughs> and are fired through the sky. And as they're flying through the sky, they join arms, link together, pull themselves into a giant ball, <laughs> land, on the other, land on the city walls on the other side, and kind of explode out as a human hand grenade, <laughs> knocking all of the enemy soldiers out. It's genius. It's so badly done. It's wonderful. That's really rather bizarre. If you Google or if you YouTube Bollywood action scenes, there are some absolutely brilliantly awful action scenes in Bollywood. I'm trying to think... It's ra- I was trying to think of another one while you were talking about that, and I was, you may have heard me tapping, tapping on my keyboard... I was trying to find the name of this New Zealand actor. I, I've almost done this as a topic. New Zealand actor called Peter O'Brien, who during the 80s became an Indonesian action star um, for a rip-off of Rambo called Rambu. 
Brilliant. I'd like to see it. Yeah. So it's the whole series of films. Present and angry. Right, right. Oh, bro. <laughs> Fantastic. Complete nonsense. I like watching. That I've watched quite a lot of Bollywood films over people's shoulders on long haul flights before. I mean, you could just watch it myself. You could just watch Bollywood films yourself. That. Yeah. Fuck. Wasted. That's twenty four hours of my life. I'm going to get back. Speaking of uh, bits of our life, when we get back, uh, let's get back to the script. <laughs> so, uh, so yes, as it was, he was assumed killed in action when his tags were found around the remains of the guy he'd been travelling with. To the extent that a funeral was held for him back at home, he was he was declared properly killed in action. In reality, he'd actually been captured, and after a stint being forced to clear mines, basically as a human minesweeper, he was put on a death march to a camp in uh, Leipzig, which is around 100 miles south of Berlin forced to walk for hours every day and crammed into railway freight wagons for, for days on end without food or, or any kind of water. Uh, and oh, at this point, my printer notes have stopped printing. I've got three blank pages. <laughs> so, so let's seamlessly roll into my computer notes, which are angled away from my microphone. Uh, <laughs> on your third computer screen. Uh, he tried to escape from the camp near Leipzig and uh, was captured a couple of times and found himself transported eventually to a camp near Lind, which was close to the Belgian border. Being blonde-haired, blue-eyed and speaking a little German, he was very quickly made the camp translator, a position which meant he ended up closer to the enemy officers than most of the other Ooh, prisoners. I'm the camp translator. Oh, here we go. Me to translate. <laughs> here we go. Here's the bloody obvious oh, joke. <laughs> Choo-choo. Here comes the obvious train. <laughs> why, would you, why would you skip it, Sam? Why would you let it go? I don't care that it's obvious. Also, I can't believe you haven't made a joke about the officer's fashion. <laughs> oh, I see you're speaking style. <laughs> you go, boss. Beautiful. <laughs> Guten Tag. <laughs> it's a cracking concept. Camp translator. Sounds like it could be a, a Jason Statham film. Your camp, mein camp. <laughs> So yes, one day whilst walking around the camp doing translatory things, he passed a German Luftwaffe lieutenant who had a sling on his arm and, uh, after smiling at each other, greeted him with a Guten Morgen. Gosh, you can see why they made him the camp translator. In perfect English, the officer replied, good morning, back to him. That man was Karl Kirschner, who was uh, a lieutenant recovering at his grandmother's farm next to the camp after being shot down over the Russian lines and wounded. It's quite possible he was actually AWOL, um, according to some sources, but he seemed to have the run of the camp with no one causing too much of a stir about it and was still in uniform, so clearly he wasn't being treated as a, a particular flight risk at this point in the war, uh, with just a few days left to go. Uh, the two got talking, Carl knowing a bit about uh, Milwaukee, whatever it's called, as a city with a large German population, some of whom had returned to Germany during the war, so reasonably well-known place. The two also discovered very quickly that they shared a love of chess, and Carl began to smuggle Max out of the camp at night by lifting up the barbed wire fence. Oh, he's a clever one. Yeah, I know, eh? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. By opening the gate. <laughs> yeah, yes, by merely leaving, you can cunningly escape the camp. How he managed to get caught twice escaping before with such high security, I'll never know. <laughs> so yes, every night Carl would just open the door and Max would leave the camp before the two would run off to a nearby barn on his grandmother's farm, drink cognac, smoke cigars and play chess whilst his grandmother oh, cooked for them. It was a night so he could actually jump over the, over the fence. He could move three forward and one to the side. Ah, uh, is that it? It just didn't work either, did it? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, Tom, it's because he was a queen so he could move whichever way he liked. The, oh yes, of course, because he was a camp translator. Indeed. <laughs> so yes, uh... Carl's grandmother would cook for them every night, which was obviously incredibly risky. Uh, you know, going to just the house, 
next to the camp. <laughs> Having a lovely slap-up dinner, drinking fine wine, smoking cigars and playing chess, and then just returning. Staggering two in the morning. Hello! Yes. With a, with a wounded German officer in your arms. <laughs> <laughs> da, 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 da. Oh, wow. <laughs> so pretty quickly, the two became best friends, Carl revealing that he'd been conscripted and was a fairly unwilling participant in the war, and that before the war, his family had had lots of Jewish friends. His father, a teacher, had actually been conscripted into a penal battalion in the German army for secretly teaching Jewish kids under the Nazis. A penal battalion, by the way, was essentially a death sentence. They'd be used as uh, as human minesweepers or sent on suicide missions to swarm enemy defences. Operation so. Human Shield. Operation Human Shield, yeah, pretty much. So, uh, so yes, his father had been essentially punished with a, with a death sentence for secretly teaching Jewish kids after Kristallnacht. Uh, incidentally, he did actually survive the war, though, I think his dad did. Anyway, over the next six weeks or so, the two became close friends, playing chess almost every night, and at some point Max revealed to Carl that he was in fact Jewish himself, which uh, Carl had, had already guessed. Clearly the prison <laughs> guards of, must have spotted him... at the some... long little ponytails by the side of his face, and the little cap on his head, <laughs> yes. the long black outfit, <laughs> carrying the Torah under his arm. They'd give away... <laughs> Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, I mean, clearly the prison guards must have spotted this going on at some point, but obviously didn't give one single fuck, given that Max turned up again every evening, (laughs) slightly drunk. Uh, So here's a quote from, from Max in the book. It was never about the enemy between Carl and me. It wasn't about the uniforms that we wore. If I had felt that Carl had been a true Nazi, we would never have become friends. And thank God, Carl didn't see me as a threat either. And maybe it had to do with our ages. I was 21, he was 19... Maybe we were naive, but more than that, we were able to be truthful with our own feelings. And the truth was simple. We saw in each other an immediate connection, a brother. There's a brilliant website which summarises the book by an American rabbi or, or study group, uh, which at this point paraphrases what happens when they, they tried really hard to give the book the tone of a parable or religious text in their paraphrasing to make it seem a bit more deep. Unfortunately, it's been... Don't you think it's quite interesting that, um, what, 70, 80 years ago, You've got two young men who've got the opportunity to run around Nazi Germany shooting people, playing chess. And now today, people in their early 20s, rather than playing chess, go and run around Nazi Germany trying to shoot people, playing Call of Duty. It's almost like a sort of... Okay, boomer. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not... This is quite... I thought it was quite interesting. They basically had an opportunity to do... (laughs) I mean, the two guys going around shooting shooting Nazis, remember one of them was German. You you get, you know, Second World War games. That's what every 19 and 21-year-old likes to play nowadays. That's very true, yes. Interesting little comparison. Do you know what, Tom? They don't don't even drink cognac anymore. It it is interesting as well. It's all lemon sherbet alco pops and (laughs) four loco sniffing their cocaines. God, in my day, Tom, it was a sherbet dip-dab and a wank over a portrait of Winston Churchill. Now, it's a very interesting and salient point, Tom. Well Thank done, you. you. <laughs> i draw a comparison there. <laughs> that people can yes. go, oh, yes, yes. Oh, yes. Fascinating. You're talking about wanking over Churchill. All right, carry on. I am, yes. Do you know what? Kids you, kids these days don't even have the common decency to knock one, knock one out over Boris Johnson. Can you imagine Boris Johnson doing this, the scene from There's Something About Mary? <laughs> With yeah. the hair. Oh, no. Imagine if Cameron Diaz started looking like that. Imagine if she's got one of those before and after photos. You would not believe what she looks like now. And she'd look like Boris Johnson. <laughs> Theresa May. <laughs> Oh, God, she's let herself go. That's yes, yes. really rather good looking. <laughs> Marvellous. Uh, yes, anyway. 
So there's a brilliant website which summarises the book by an American rabbi or, or study group, which at this point paraphrases what happens in the next bit of the story. But unfortunately, they've tried really hard to give it the kind of the air and tone of a parable or religious text to add some kind of deeper significance to it. And it's been a little bit clumsily done uh, and has come across slightly broke back mountain. So I'm going to read <laughs> from the next quote is from that website, Tom. Carl said next, I am content in knowing and feeling that I have made a good lifelong friend in you, regardless of how long that life is, and I feel sure that you must feel the same. Our friendship and strong-willed desire for freedom will see us through. There was a pause. Max took Carl's hand, swallowed Ooh. hard, and said yes, thank you. And then they fucked. <laughs> That's true, they didn't. Um... <laughs> Eventually, the, uh, with the Russian army literally audible in the distance, Carl and Max decided that they, uh, they did need to make a break for it and basically get out of Dodge. The plan was that uh, Max would essentially now escort Carl from the camp and save Carl's life. Using smuggled papers, they would head to the US lines and Carl would escort Max and another prisoner under the pretenses that they had valuable intel and would be moved to another camp. So for the time that they were behind the German lines, Carl would be leading Max and this other prisoner, pretending that they were being moved and as soon as they crossed the lines into American territory Carl would become the prisoner they made a break for the American lines one night and after being shelled by the Russians and interrogated by German military police they did eventually manage to reach safety Carl being taken prisoner and Max being shipped back to the USA to uh, to recover from his injuries and time in captivity they stayed in touch after the war though uh, Carl finished a medical degree in Germany before being sponsored by Max to come to the USA and do his residency and he never went home he lived there forevermore and the two became best friends for the rest of their lives uh, he settled in uh, I think California and Carl finally died in 2009 with Max by his side and I don't think I'm not sure I don't think Max is still alive either I think he's since died but there we go yeah, Tom what a lovely story that's a very happy story uh, a story of a German prisoner of uh, a Jewish prisoner of war and a German officer who became best friends and escaped the war together Nazi friends Nazi friends Nazi friends slightly rushed telling of it because I lost my notes <laughs> that's alright and was therefore essentially going blind through the last half of that story that's quite alright no that's a lovely story because we generally find the worst parts of history don't we we do for these podcasts it's nice to have something uplifting yeah i thought so i found a nice Positive. best friend story you did you did something not about two friends who murdered each other no, it's two friends who broke down societal restraints indeed and showed for love of chess and cognac the raw love between two men who just like to spend two time blonde hair blue-eyed men who just enjoy spending evenings in their grandmother's barn yeah, shifting their bishops around. Absolutely, taking each other's pawns. <laughs> Marvel, should we think of a topic for do, to do for next week? Have we got anything lined up? Well, it's a patrons episode next week, isn't it? So we can think of one ourselves. I'm easy going. Have we got anything that we can work off? Have you got any particular ideas? Ooh, hang about. Let's have a look around my room and see what I can find for inspiration. How about we talked about um, Bollywood and we talked about Rambu. How about <laughs> we do um, imitation? Oh, yeah, okay. Let's do imitation for the patrons. And then can we do mad military inventions for the next public one? Imitation and mad military, and military inventions. inventions. Yeah. Inventions. Cracking job. Marvellous. 
Well, audience, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, if you would like to hear that episode on imitation, then you can join the Order of the Bath, our patron-exclusive offer, where for just the price of a, of a cup of coffee, uh, potentially quite an expensive cup of coffee if, coffee if you go for the top tier, you can get uh, an episode every other week, a patron-exclusive episode. You also get access to Tom's Doodles for every episode. Hello. Very good doodles. Bruce Forsyth and a sex swing. Quite like that Ooh, one. Oh, yes. Often imitated, never bettered. It's going with the theme of next week's episode. You also get three songs from me. Enjoy it. You can go to patreon.com slash genius to join the Order of the Bathtub. You can also join us on Facebook. We've got a uh, we've got a lovely group. That was Genius, a funny history podcast group. Pop us an email if you like. We're thatwasgeniuscast at gmail.com. Right, until next week, say goodbye, Tom. Goodbye. It's goodbye from me. Bye-bye. <laughs>